Hi, and welcome to Communicating Climate Change, a podcast dedicated to helping you do exactly that. I'm Dickon, and I'll be your host as we dig deep into the best practices and the worst offences, always looking for ways to help you and me improve our abilities to engage, empower, and ultimately activate audiences on climate-related issues. This episode features a conversation with pan-African and decolonization activist Mbong Akifokwa Tsafak, recorded in late October 2022. Mbong, who was born in Cameroon but now lives in South Africa, is a recognised chartered public relations practitioner and works as head of communications at Greenpeace Africa. She holds a master's degree in corporate communication and a postgraduate honours degree in the same field. She also holds a double honours bachelor's degree in women and gender studies and journalism and mass communication. As you'll hear, Mbong started her career as a television news anchor, and now, with more than 15 years in the industry, is a media expert, a seasoned communication strategist, and a passionate writer with an obsession for narratives and story. Simply put, amplifying the voices of communities at the front line of any struggle, whether it be environmental, social, or legal, is what she's all about. Amongst other things, we talked about the power of framing, the role of communication in activism, and what it takes to engage audiences on the African continent. So, let's get on with the show. This is Communicating Climate Change with Mbong Akifokwa Tsafak. Hi Mbong, how are you doing? Thank you so much for agreeing to give me some of your time and uh, some of your thoughts and expertise. I'm really excited to talk about these subjects. I wanted to just dive right in with a, a big, broad question that I like to ask everybody on the podcast, and that's about how communication uh, can contribute to mitigating the worst effects of climate change in the first place. Well, um, maybe just to start by saying that communication essentially has to be the bridge between the science and the manifestation of climate change. And I think that in most parts of the world, especially in Africa, where the concept of climate change is still foreign in many communities. Um, being able to break down the science is so important because without doing that, you run the risk of politicians using colorful language to deny climate change. And even without any bad intention, you also find traditional leaders who would start talking about the weather gods being outraged, you know, and linking uh, climate change to other traditional occurrences or gods or traditional worship. So I think that um, communication is so critical in um, in climate change or even mitigating climate change because it's only when people start understanding that what's happening to them is caused by human activity and human action can reverse it. Um, and I think that's the role that communication brings. And also just maybe one thing around mitigating climate change as well, communicating climate change in through people's lived experiences is very important. So if you go to a rural community in Kenya and you're talking about climate change, you might sound um, a bit out of touch. But if you're talking about the fact that a few years ago we had two seasons and now we only have one, then of course you're now bringing it down to what they understand, what they have lived and what they have experienced. And then the science now comes to add a bit more to, to, to what they already know. And I think for me that's where... It's a very important starting point and I'm glad that you started with that question because as communicators, we constantly face with the challenge of ensuring that communication is not just a concept, but it's something that people can actually relate to. People can understand based on their own lived experiences. Yeah, absolutely. This is something that I hear time and time again. I mean, 
what does 1.5 degrees warming really mean to many people? It's such an abstract thought. So I, I hear this time and time again to bring climate change to the people in terms that they understand and live. So I think that's a, a wonderful point and, and one that maybe takes us nicely onto the next question about your background uh, in the journalist uh, realm. So you arrived at Greenpeace after working as a journalist and a news anchor. I wondered if you could maybe describe what the differences are between these worlds and the ways that they address climate change. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I think that there are more similarities in these two worlds and their differences. But maybe just to say, I think the fundamental difference will be that uh, as a news anchor, as a news reporter uh, in both roles, you're constantly seeking the truth. Of course, you're constantly seeking to tell a story, to expose the truth, to hold someone accountable, and to also make sure that you're telling the stories in very simplistic ways that people can understand it. If we're bringing it back to climate change, of course, if we're talking about some corruption or some dodgy politician, it will be easy for everyone to understand. But if you're communicating climate change and you're constantly faced with the challenge of ensuring that whatever you're covering, your audiences or your viewers can understand. Interestingly, there was a blog actually that I wrote for uh, the 50th anniversary of Greenpeace. And I, I didn't write this headline though, I, but I wrote the blog and somehow when it went to Greenpeace International, the headline became from crafting the headlines to influencing them. And I think that in itself does really speak to the difference because at one point you're crafting headlines, you're constantly just talking about what is the headline. But when you're on the other side where I am now, you're constantly trying to influence it. You're trying to push the right story to the media and hoping that they will be able to cover the story with the agency that the story needs to be told. Actually, I think the agency is the most appropriate word with the agency. So it's really about trying to ensure that the right stories, the right climate stories are, are making uh, the headlines, are, are making the front pages. But I would say the more similarities because essentially as an activist, and I do think of myself as an activist, uh, if you're working for Greenpeace, you, you're definitely an activist, even if you're in the communications department. And we're constantly trying to expose the truth as well. We're constantly trying to hold polluters and hold power accountable for the environmental injustices. We're constantly trying to also break down the science, as I said earlier, because we have campaigners, we have scientists who are constantly bombarding us with emissions and 1.5 degrees. And as communicators, we're constantly reflecting on how do we make this a story for the masses, a story that people can understand. How do we tell them this complex issue uh, in a way that makes sense. You know, I, I think that is why I see more similarities, but the fundamental difference days. In this global challenge though, with so many perspectives colliding, whose truth are we talking about? I wanted to find out more about framing, the act of giving more weight to certain arguments or considerations than others. As a former journalist, I, I, yeah, I assume this is something that you know a fair bit about, but I wondered if you could give an example from your work with Greenpeace, where opposing or differing frames kind of competed with one another so that maybe we could get to the bottom of how the way that we frame issues is actually quite important and can really make a difference in which narrative takes hold in the end. Oh, well, I think there, there, there are tons of examples um, in my just over a decade experience with Greenpeace. There's been quite a few examples, but I think that the one which would really bring perspective to this is when I joined Greenpeace um, several years ago, I was comms manager for, for Greenpeace Africa. I was based in South Africa. So just by virtue of being in South Africa, the campaign in South Africa became one of my priorities for decades. South Africa, which is a country that has heavily depended on coal, um, 
uh, coal is being perceived as the backbone of the economy, you know, and the, the, the issue of jobs and economy and, 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 and growth are so intertwined that when you're talking about coal as this villain, this, this source of energy that is wrecking the environment, that is wrecking the planet, it's very hard to make that, that narrative meaningful when you're going fully against what people perceive to be their livelihoods and their source of life. And maybe in the bigger frame of Africa, that is a similar thing because all across Africa, you hear this narrative that has been entrenched very deeply in African society that Africa needs to use or exploit its natural resources to develop. And it, it does feel like we constantly, as an environmental movement, pushing against that frame. But the reality is, we have also, in some cases, when we're talking about frames conflicting, saying, oh, no, we actually also wanting you to have good jobs. We want your economy to develop, but we want you to have jobs that don't kill. You know, let's move away from jobs that kill. Let's look at an economy that is not wrecking the environment, because at the end of the day, money and the economy should be working for people and planet and not the other way around. You know, and society has been shaped in a way that we constantly, as people, thinking that we need to wreck the planet and wreck the environment to service the economy. But no, the planet sustains life, it sustains us. And I think that at the end of the day, nature and people, the planet and people, um, should be the basis for which everything else is structured or organized around. Let me just give another example. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, it's one of, in my view, the most resource-rich countries in the world. And it has one of the most important forests second to the Amazon, the most important carbon sink. And if it's twisted around, it becomes a carbon bomb. And they say, we're going to cut down all of this forest to drill for oil. And this is actually preying also on the vulnerability of Congolese. Some of whom are living without energy, we're living in poverty and we feel like oil will bring, will bring about economic growth. And we say, no, this is the wrong way to go about it. The curse of oil has proven itself across the African continent. And there are many other ways that you could take your people out of poverty than hinging on this narrative of um, growth and development. So I think that is one of the biggest uh, narratives that we've been up against and where we say, yeah, we also want you to grow, but grow doing the right things, grow with renewable energy, have clean jobs, have jobs that will sustain life, have jobs that will protect your communities, that will protect clean air. So I think that's for me um, on the African or more um, country-based um, uh, situations or context, we've, we've come against that a lot. The economic and job frames. I read that uh, the piece that you mentioned on Greenpeace International's blog, and you you talked about the coal there, but you you also mentioned that there was an action that took place right in South in South Africa, I believe, where you dumped some coal. Is that maybe you could explain what part that played? In that blog, I was trying to list some of the the most outstanding actions that I've been a part of, and that was first action that I was a comms lead on. And we were we we, we had this whole scenario to to dump coal in front of um, ESCOM. ESCOM is the the national utility energy utility for South Africa, and Megawatt Park. It's like the headquarters of ESCOM, and the the intention there was to dump coal as a way of saying take your mess, own your mess, because coal is a uh, skilling communities. Uh, is depriving people of a of a good and safe, healthy community, and you you insisting on a business model which is based heavily on coal. So yeah, so we got there early in the morning, as very early hours, as is usually the case, and then kind of uploaded all of this truckload of coal in front of Megawatt Park. It was also the very first time that South Africa was kind of witnessing such an uh, such a protest. So uh, by far, that was probably one of my 
was exciting days because we had like six um, newspaper front page headlines. And yeah, one of those days when you come back as a comms person feeling really good about your day's job. Yeah, awesome. I mean, this is exactly the um, gaining that publicity, I suppose, and and flipping the flipping the frame on how coal is being talked about is is then the power, right? Exactly. I think that's exactly you've just nailed it. I think that is exactly what that action did. Um, and and I, I'm I'm sorry to speak about that, but I think that it was so important because. In South African society, before then, coal had been seen as this saving grace. Like, we cannot survive without coal. We are a coal people. And it was a start of a conversation that starts changing the narrative. You know, it was a start of a conversation that, have we been doing the right thing? Or do we need to stay so dependent on this source of energy, which hurts the planet? Do we need to, to continue with this business model? And I'm, I can tell you now, 10 years, and it's been 10 years since then, uh, that was 2011, almost 11 years now. In the 11 years since that action, the narrative has also changed considerably. And South Africans themselves are now questioning whether they should continue investing in coal. And there's now a bigger pool of South Africans who think renewable energy could offer them a better future. But back then, when we talk about renewable energy, even the media, even the journalists did not know what we're talking about. And we really had to like have conversations and sessions to explain what renewable energy was. And but the conversation has moved uh, tremendously since then. And I think usually um, we call the mind bomb sometimes, like some public protest, usually it's a good way to start shifting our narrative and getting people to think about these things differently. Mind bombs. What a wonderful turn of phrase. Since I had Mbong in the hot seat, it seemed logical to press her on the role that communication plays in activism more broadly. Where does activism intersect with communication activities? And how can it both amplify those activities and potentially diminish them? Well, I'll, I'll start by saying that communication in itself is activism, you know, um, for any good protest. And I'll, I'll use activism and protest interchangeably because in, in, in my world, um, usually when we talk about activism, it's holding banners, it's, it's, it's going out and protesting and, and doing what we did in, in front of Megawatt Park. And we've done that in several other places against nuclear, against overfishing, you know. But communication in itself is a component of a good protest. It's a component of activism. So for a good action to happen, all of these different parts, complementing parts need to be in place. You need to have a good support system. You need to have the activists themselves who are ready to be chained or to dump the coal. You need to have um, the logistics who would invest in making sure that the security is there. You need to have lots of different teams and communication is just one component of those complementary parts. But it takes every single part of that puzzle to do its job well for an action or for a protest to be successful. So I think that in most parts, um, when it's very successful and we make as many headlines, then it does feel like communication is the most important aspect. But I think you cannot make as many headlines if the rest of it wasn't that successful. You know, if the call did not arrive, then there would not be an action. If the activists did not pitch, then there wouldn't be an action. And then, of course, the journalists would be disappointed that you woke them up at 4.30 in the morning to come and witness an action that didn't happen. 
So I think it's it's really that's the complementarity of the different aspects of a good action that makes even the communication piece uh, uh, successful. And when it does go as planned, you're like, oh, it's always this sense of relief because now you know you're making a headline. You know the story will be covered. So it's, it's one part. And the activist in you is always yearning for that success because it has to be successful for the story to go to travel. And for that impact, if it's a narrative change or if it's if it's just calling someone to account or if it's, it's exposing the truth, it has to be put together properly for all of that to come together. Wonderfully described, like a like a dance or something. It does feel like a dance sometimes. <laughs> but with chains. <laughs> we don't always have chains. We had cold sometime. And in one instance, we had nuclear masks and nuclear bags, you know. So it could be something else. (laughs) I wanted to understand if there were any unique challenges or frequent assumptions or commonly overlooked nuances associated with communicating climate change across the African continent. Um, I I think that we do share the similar challenges. I think it might be a bit more peculiar in Africa, but the similar challenges that sometimes we go about communicating climate change as if everyone already knows about it. And for most people, it's still very much a scientific term. It's still very much uh, a high level, maybe in some context, it's a middle class, highly educated concept. You know, it's not a concept for the ordinary uh, person on the street who who goes about their daily business. I think one of the the things we overlook is that it's it's exactly that. It is not a mainstream concept. It's not like saying I'm going to I'm going to a football match. It's, It's communicating science, you know. Um, and so when we, we when we overlook the point of it not being uh, a term that is in most people's daily vocabulary, that is already an issue. When we become aware of that, then we start looking at different ways to communicate the same issue without necessarily um, hinging too much on the term itself as climate change. And I think that is what we do a lot in Africa because we know that the people that we need to, to educate or to, to sensitize about the climate impacts are not necessarily familiar with this term, but they experience climate change every single day. And for us, it's about always tapping into their daily experiences to make this concept something that they can relate to. And what we also overlook, we overlook as communicators, I think we generally overlook the fact that when we're trying to communicate climate change and the climate crisis, we overlook the fact that we have, we've, we face with opponents who have huge resources, huge networks who are trying to communicate the opposite. We're trying to deny that they are wrecking our planet and they're investing huge amounts of money to ensure that their own narratives are in the fall. Whether it's government saying we need to wreck the environment because we need to develop and constantly telling people that, no, forget about climate change. Your progress is more important. Meanwhile, what they're investing in would not change the lives of those people. You know, we overlook the forces that we are, we are up against. But we overlook the fact that Essentially, we need to stay a movement because it's only when we stay as a movement and we connect as a movement effectively that we, we, we get the power to overcome the forces that we're up against. As Greenpeace, Africa, as any other movement, organization that is working towards um, delivering on the climate imperative, if we're not working together and really connecting and making sure that we're strong together, then we definitely are weakening ourselves given who we're faced with, who our opponents are. 
and I can just give you a few examples. In South Africa, um, it is communities in the wild coast, and I'm sure you've heard about the shell case where communities in the wild coast of South Africa took shell to court and say, no, you're not going to do any seismic testing on the on our coastline. And they won the court case, but it's the South African government, the Minister of Environment in South Africa, that is trying to appeal a case that has been won by communities, you know, so that is to tell you that when I talk about the forces we're up against, usually it's the, it's the big power, it's the, it's the big multinationals with huge amounts of money. And usually they, 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 they're working together, they're completed with the government. So it's usually that we're up against all of these big, strong forces. And that is where uh, the power of the movement really comes in and power of connecting with communities who have ultimately the right on who they want in their backyard. It was time to ask Mbong some specific questions about what we get right and what we get wrong with communicating climate change to help us come away with some actionable input to apply in our own communications efforts. In your opinion, what's the single most important aspect of communication that we as communicators, as a community of communicators, uh, should be paying attention to in our efforts to communicate climate change? Oh, um... I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna divert a little bit in this on this question. I think that I think the single most important aspect in communicating climate change, I've touched on it a few times here, which is really about bringing it back to the people, you know. But I also want to just bring in a different perspective. Um, and for me, I think it's the single most important endeavor that as Greenpeace Africa we're trying to to push. We we do have a a, a very clear guidance in our storytelling and in our comms work. Um. And as head of communication, it's my role to ensure that that guidance is upheld at all times. And it's a guidance that says that we're not necessarily going for the low-hanging fruits. We're not necessarily going for the cheap headlines. We're going to stay true to what we want to push. And it's about pushing the agency of Africa's people, that they are owning their well-being. And in doing that, it means also portraying them in a way that shows that they have agency. So... It, it would be easy for us to just conform to every other movement that has um, the, the pictures of Africans as victims, as these helpless people would need to be saved by someone. But it's a deliberate and it's very intentional that we would not do that in our communication. And I think for some, for some organizations, it's hard to stay true to what your own values or what your guidance or your, your narrative or what, what it is you've agreed to do. And I speak here as um, the head of comms to say that for me, it's it's been a very difficult endeavor it's it's but for me it's a single most important because it's very easy to deviate from what doesn't give you the, the easy headlines but when you know that it's driving the right kinds of action when it's driving the right kinds of attitude um it's showing africans in the way that you want them to be seen by the world you stay true to it and it, it doesn't come with cheap headlines but it, when you stay true to it it gives you the different level of fulfillment and it goes a long way in terms of your campaigning because the wins we are seeing now on the african continent are mostly led by communities two three years ago it was a community in kenya lamu it's a little touristic town in kenya and there the, the was a, a chinese project to open a coal mine and this community fought and fought and fought and in the courts as well got that um the coal project to be canned, you know. So it's really about when we when you're consciously trying to ensure that you're lifting up, you're not depriving people of their voice and their agency, it does take time. 
But eventually you start seeing the benefits because when communities speak up and say, no, we don't want this and we're not going to see it, we do not want cold in our backyards. That was the exact line they were using. You get a kind of sense of fulfillment in 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 the patient that it does come to pay. And I, I think that is for me, as communicators, not always look for the low-hanging fruits. Sometimes the difficult, the more difficult routes take you to a more um to bigger gains, I would say. Um and of course, uh, it also comes with communicating things in ways that people understand. It always comes in investing in ensuring that people know what it is you're trying to to tell them. The the kind of sister to the last question is then obviously what's the biggest mistake that you see communication professionals make uh, when attempting to engage the public on climate change? I think I, I can I can I can I can briefly touch on that and probably just leave you with one experience. But I think that. We think that climate change is a concept that is understood by everyone. We we don't realize that it only starts making sense when you start communicating things in ways that people understand. Or the droughts in 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 East Africa, or the the floods that we're seeing in West Africa. You know, when you start communicating it, you need to always constantly talk about people's lived experience. And when we don't do that, we we treat climate change as this concept that everyone understands. It's a very big mistake. But then also, I think the rush of wanting to communicate the climate emergency does put us in lots of traps. And I'm going to give you an example. A few years ago, we, we did publish a report. It was the first time I was checked by African Check. And the report was about the air pollution levels in um, Pumalanga in South Africa, which has one of the highest density of coal fire plants. And the air pollution levels were quite high. So when we published the report, of course, we made a lot of headlines. And because the report was so covered by the media, um, Africa checked him to say, but it's actually Pumalanga is not the, this, this. It was a bit uncomfortable, but the check wasn't that the report wasn't accurate. It was that the time frames where the measurements were made was some nuance complicated. I think that's sometimes one of the mistakes we made that the agency of communicating climate change Sometimes, if we're not careful, we're so wanting to communicate uh, that agency that we 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 lose track of the need to be exact and accurate so that we're not being chased by the African checks of the world. Wise words from Mbong Akifokwa Tsafak. What will you be taking away with you? What can you integrate into the ways that you communicate climate change? Something that I heard loud and clear was the importance of ensuring that any communication on climate change makes sense to the audience in terms of their lived experiences. And beyond that, to stay ambitious and not just settle for any of the easy wins, whilst at the same time working with urgency, but not so much urgency that we lose sight of the important details or fail to lift up the people at the heart of the stories we're telling. That sounds like a pretty thrilling manifesto if you ask me. So those were the points that stuck with me, but how about you? Thanks to Mbong for taking the time to share so many insights and so much energy with the show. You can find some relevant links in the show notes. Thanks also to you for listening to Communicating Climate Change. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts, or by subscribing so you're always kept up to date. In upcoming shows, I'll be talking to guests about telling better climate stories, what we can learn from the arts, and how we can avoid getting caught up in greenwashing and the disinformation economy, as well as much, much more. Don't forget, each and every episode attempts to add to our toolkit to help us develop the communication muscles we'll need to engage, 
empower and activate audiences on climate-related issues. So be sure to tune in for more. For anything else, just head over to communicatingclimatechange.com. Until next time, take care.